Hello and welcome to Speak the Words, a Stormlight Archive podcast. I'm Sean. And I'm Mango. And this is a podcast where I walk Mango through the Stormlight Archive book series, the plot. She's not reading them. I'm reading them and taking notes, and I'm giving the information to her secondhand. Uh, Mango, for anybody unfamiliar, you have, like, no experience with Brandon Sanderson, correct? Not with his books. I've with his books, of his yeah. lectures. Yes. But, like, I don't, I haven't read his books. Mm-hmm. So that's the basic premise of this podcast. Before we get into the stuff that we normally do, I actually do have a different thing to bring up. Because I got oh. some, I got, I got some stuff to bring up because I got some messages from somebody who listens to the show, a friend of ours, Mango, Ribs. Ribs. And uh, Ribs, who's been listening along, has been asking me some interesting questions about stuff. And I kind of wanted to bring them up on here and get your thoughts on the things that she was, uh, she's brought up. Okay. And so the first thing that I want to bring up is uh, like a week ago. I was going to bring this up last episode, but I forgot. Um, she sent me a message about the uh, the currency. And she yeah. asked, okay, quick question. The currency of the world is like precious metals, gold, silver, etc. They just find the valuable things and put it in a small sphere. Then I explained it specifically, the gemstones that they put inside the glass. And then she said, she asked, like, is it, how do they find it? Is it naturally, are the gemstones naturally occurring? And that's when I explained Something that I haven't talked about on the podcast yet, and I'll talk about it here because it's a minor detail that doesn't really fit in anywhere else, unless it's just an offhanded comment. Um, All the creatures of Roshar, like we've seen them in the Chasm Fiend, they have gem hearts. At their hearts, they have gemstones inside of them. So it's almost like fossils, gemstones. Over time, as creatures die their gem hearts will get buried underground. And that is why there is such an abundance of gemstones available to be used as the basis of an economy. Because otherwise that'd be a pretty bad way to base your economy on gemstones, on precious, so, precious so gemstones. So the more that people hunt, the more money there is in inflation? Um, I, I would assume that would be the case. Again, these are the little things that they don't ever bring up, but... Ribs, when I said that, like, the gemstones, the as creatures die and they're buried underground, and if their gem hearts are still there, then it's kind of like fossils. And then Ribs asked, then it's kind of like oil. Which then made me have the realization that I had not picked up on yet, which is that the Shattered Plains is really i don't know if it's on per it's got to be on purpose because it's too it's it's too close is like a real big analogy for the iraq war like it's so so tragedy and alethkar king gavilar is assassinated alethkar thinks that the assassin is with the parshendi and the shattered plans they don't really fucking care they're gonna invade the shattered plans anyways but they invade And at first they're like, yeah, we're going in there to fucking, we're going to go get the guys that did the bad things. But then they're like, whoa, there are these gem hearts and they're massive and they give us a lot of money. Like this, these are really good. They are extending the war because they want to hunt the the chasm fiends and get the gem hearts. They're not even really fighting the Parshendi. They're more just 
trying to get the gem hearts from the chasm fiends. Which is mm-hmm. kind of what happened with the rack and oil. <laughs> so I, I, I don't know if that's exactly what Sanderson was going for, but it seems pretty fucking close for it to be an accident. Yeah, it, if it was an accident, it's a that's a pretty amazing accident because yeah. that sounds pretty close. But back to the initial idea of of the gemstones. What do you what do you think of the idea of it essentially being like a fossil and it's like cuz cuz Ribs had said that she she thought it was cool that it's like these these things that are essentially fossils because as these animals die and they have gem hearts and they get, you know, buried underground. Uh, the gem hearts are down there. And I mean, it kind of explains why there's so many of them. Humans are m- carbon-based life forms and mm-hmm. diamonds are just really, really, really compressed carbon. So <laughs> Yeah, that's true. That's surprising. Technically, all uh-huh. diamonds are made from fossils anyway. Yeah. it's I, I think the interesting idea of it is... It kind of skips that step. It makes it happen quicker. Like, you don't need to wait for the gemstones to be naturally formed, which is helpful because Sanderson has said that with the way this planet is set up, it will not last. It will not last a very long time. (laughs) With three moons and the level of gravity that it has and everything that they had to, like, figure out to make the world work. He's like, yeah, this world does not have a long time. Like, a hundred thousand years tops. (laughs) Like man uh the other thing that she brought up today that prompted me being like oh i want to bring this up on the podcast is she sent me a message asking are spren just like anime reaction imagery you know on animes like when they when they're over when they're like when they're really reacting to something sometimes they'll have like the little smokes appear over their head or something mm-hmm. i think she, that's kind of what she was referring to <laughs> I um, like that idea. It's <laughs> and it's not completely off. Um from what we've seen, we know that we Spren are attracted to strong feelings. That mm-hmm. uh, whenever there's like a place with a lot of people that are scared, fear spren will appear there. Um Okay, but there are also fire spren. There are also flame spren, which I also brought up to Ribs saying that uh there is it is bigger than just that but that it's an it, it is a it is it is a train of thought that will lead you in the right direction to some answers so there are emotion spren and then there are elemental spren at the very least so far so far from what we've seen okay uh there is a chapter in this book that we will eventually get to where I will just be able to tell you what Spren are. Okay. But one day, one day we'll get there. <laughs> uh, as that's all I have. That's all I have from uh, from ribs. But I wanted to bring those up because I I thought it was interesting conversation. Um, as for what we normally do here, Mango, let's get into it. What happened last time? We got introduced to three characters. I don't remember their names, but one of them's supposed to be like a king 
One of them was the king's the previous king's brother that was mm-hmm. drunk all the time and now is, regrets it. And his son? Oh, and then there was his other son who can't fight that you really like. I really love him. King Elokar, uh, High Prince Dalinar, and then Prince Adolin and Prince Renarin. Adolin is the older son that fights and Renarin is the one that does not. Um, who else were we introduced to? Wit. Wit. Ribs also messaged me after listening to the episode uh, to the episode and said, uh, "Wit is a Chad." <laughs> Wit seems like too much of. He's too smart to be a Chad. Yeah, he's Wit's pretty cool. Um, Dalinar does not trust him. Uh, we did have one Kaladin chapter last week. Do you remember what happened in that? He tried to get people to listen to the, him, and he, they were just like, you don't have power over us when we're not in the field. And yep. so they laughed at him and ignored him. Yeah. And he trained a ton. He, like, and it, it seemed like he was kind of starting to get into people's heads by the time he was done with that. Mm-hmm. And uh, he also had a very, very deep conversation with Syl to end it off, where Syl was having an identity crisis. Yeah. Oh, oh, and she realized that he was probably about to yes. commit suicide if she hadn't shown up. Yeah. And it's a really emotional scene. Yeah. And where we left off immediately last time was uh, Wit had just pissed off Sadius. Elokar had gone to go calm him down. And Dalinar and Adolin were about to go look into a matter for Elokar. And we are going to start right now. So Adolin asks what the issue is. And Dalinar tells, just, he's just like, just, just follow me. Just don't, don't ask questions. Just follow me. They look at Wit one last time before they leave. And Wit is watching Sadius, or Sadius. He's watching Sadius. I'm going to get the fucking name right. I swear I'm going to get it right. Uh, Wit is watching Sadius. He's popping his knuckles one at a time as he does so. Then he turns to Dalinar and winks and walks away. And Adolin says that he likes Wit and Dalinar says that he might be coming around. I just don't like the popping knuckles. You don't like the popping knuckles? But it's so ominous. He's watching watching Sadius and he's popping his knuckles. We cut to Dalinar and Adolin who are inspecting the king's saddle. And we're in Adolin's POV now. Adolin asks why Elokar had them look into it, and he realizes that Elokar thought that his strap was cut. So you remember when they fought the Chasm Fiend, Elokar turned his horse and he went flying off the... His saddle broke and he went flying? Mm-hmm. Elokar thinks that his the strap of his saddle was cut, and that's why it happened. Dalinar nods and inspects the saddle, and Adolin says that Elokar is getting increasingly paranoid. Dalinar says that if the king is worried, they will investigate. And he says that he does think that the strap was tampered with in some way. Adolin asks why someone would try to kill the king this way. And Dalinar says that it doesn't matter if it was an incompetent attempt, it was still an attempt. Adolin asks what the other high princes will say, and Dalinar says that he doesn't care. Adolin complains about how they've become bureaucrats, and Dalinar says that that they're not just talking about the strap anymore. Adolin apologizes, and Dalinar says he might have needed to hear it. 
Halen says he knows that Dalinar also hates Sadius and asks why he doesn't act against him. Dalinar says that Adolin doesn't know as much as he thinks and that they'll talk about it later, but for now, something is wrong with the saddle. Adolin asks if it was one of the other High Princes and Dalinar says that Elokar isn't strict enough with them for them to want to kill him. Adolin says that the throne could be motivation enough and Dalinar tells him to look into the other High Princes when they return to the war camps. Adolin Unable to let it go, once again begins to ask if Sadius had anything to do with it, but Dalinar interrupts him. He tells Adolin that he has to stop fixating on Sadius, and he says that Sadius is one of the few people that he trusts to keep the king safe. Adolin says he doesn't, and Dalinar tells him to follow so Dalinar can show him something about Sadius. They approach High Prince Vama, who had come with them on their journey, and Dalinar asks to speak to him alone. And it's kind of a lengthy conversation, but the basic gist of what happens is Vama had been complaining about how much the king charged for use of the Soulcasters. And Vama had been planning on fixing up some of his walls and needed wood for it. Sadius told Vama that he was going to double what he charged for the wood from the trees that Sadius grows. And then Dalinar comes in and points out that the fact that it's really nice that the king allows the high princes to use soul casters for so cheap. And Vama's like, all right, I get your fucking play. Fuck off. I, 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 won't, I won't complain anymore. And walks off. Dalinar tells Sadius that Vama saw through their little maneuver and Sadius doesn't seem surprised. Dalinar asks him if he's certain that this will work and Sadius says that Vama will get the message. Dalinar asks if the king should be involved in maneuvers like this, and Sadius tells him that Elokar doesn't have the mind for it. Dalinar brings up Elokar's growing paranoia, and Sadius claims that it comes from Dalinar, that he's overprotective of Elokar. Dalinar says that he's following the codes, and Sadius says the codes are nonsense. Dalinar says that Gavilar followed the codes, and Sadius replied that Gavilar got himself killed. Dalinar asks Sadius where he'd have been while Gavilar had fought for his life. Sadius does not like that. He says that he'll protect Elokar his way and Dalinar will do it his own way. Dalinar takes Adolin and starts to leave. As they walk away, Sadius asks if Dalinar had found out why Gavilar had written what he wrote. Dalinar shakes his head and Sadius says that Dalinar is wasting his time. He says that he knows about Dalinar's visions and Adolin wonders what Sadius meant by Gavilar writing. Men don't write. So if you remember in the prologue, Gavilar gave Zeth a final message to give to Dalinar, and Zeth wrote it in Gavilar's blood. So mm-hmm. they think that that uh, Gavilar wrote it himself, and they're all like, fucking, how, he, why did he know how to write? Dalinar asks if he'd ever told to Adolin what Gavilar's final words were, and he says that they were, brother, follow the codes tonight. There is something strange upon the winds. And that was the last thing that Gavilar had ever said to Dalinar. Adolin says he didn't realize that Gavilar had followed the codes, and Dalinar says that Gavilar had introduced him to them. He says that Gavilar started following the codes shortly before he died, and that Yasna and Dalinar didn't know what to make of the change in Gavilar. Dalinar had thought the codes were foolish then, especially the one about avoiding strong alcohol during times of war. He'd been unconscious on the ground when Gavilar was murdered. He can remember people trying to wake him, but he'd been too drunk. He felt that he should have been there for Gavilar, and he blamed himself for Gavilar's death, but also felt the need to move forward. Dalinar tells Adolin that he had hoped that by having Adolin follow the codes, that Adolin wouldn't need as dramatic an example of their importance. He asks if Adolin knew Sadius' part in Gavilar's death. Adolin says that Sadius had been the decoy. 
So if you remember all the way back to the prologue again, when Zeth gets to the king's chamber, they rush a dude out in robes and they rush him down a hallway. And then the king is in shard plate pretending to be like a bodyguard. Mm-hmm. Sadius, Gavilar, and Dalinar had been good friends until Gavilar's death and that and they'd conquered Alethkar together. The decoy had been Sadius's plan. He'd heard the shard bearer and put on one of Gavilar's robes, trying to draw the assassin away. It was suicide, and Dalinar thought it was one of the bravest things a man could do. Adolin says it failed, and Dalinar says that part of him can't forgive Sadius for it not working. He thought they both should have been there fighting with Gavilar. He says that they both failed Gavilar, and neither could forgive the other. They'd made a promise that day. They'd protect Gavilar's son, no matter the cost. No matter what other things came between them, they would protect Elokar. Daladar says that's the reason he came to the Shattered Plains. Sadius thought the best way to protect Elokar was to kill the Parshendi, and Dalinar thought they needed to return to Alethkar and strengthen the throne. Adolin was surprised to hear Dalinar call Sadius brave, and Dalinar says that there's a good man inside of Sadius. He asks Adolin to respect that Sadius does try to protect Elokar. Adolin says he'll be more calm around Sadius, but tells Dalinar that he still doesn't trust the man. He asks Dalinar to be more suspicious of Sadius, and Dalinar, and Dalinar says he'll consider it. Adolin asks about what Sadius said about Gavilar writing. Dalinar says that only Sadius, Yasna, Elokar, and himself know of the writing. He says that Adolin should know, since if Dalinar falls, Adolin will take his place. Dalinar says that Gavilar had written, Brother, you must find the most important words a man can say. He says that when Sadius found them, he had hid them until Yasna could read it for them. Dalinar says that it's a quote from a book called The Way of Kings. <laughs> He's had the book read to him several times and says that the Radiance used it as some sort of guide. Adolin thought Dalinar's delusions of the Radiance must be connected to his brother's death. He considers how to help Dalinar as Elokar approaches and asks once again if they can move on ahead without the army. Dalinar says no, and Elokar thanks Dalinar for saving him. He asks if they'd looked into the saddle, and Dalinar says they think that the strap might have been cut, and Elokar is like, they- someone's trying to kill me! I told you! I told you! And Dalinar is like, look, it's probably an accident. And Elokar complains that Dalinar never believes him. It's very much, uh, you never believe me, Uncle Dalinar! Dalinar says that this would have been a terrible way to try and assassinate Elokar, and Elokar looks suspicious of Dalinar and Adolin. He has, like, he looks at them as if he thinks they might have done it. He really suspicious. Of, he really is paranoid of everybody. Everybody. He says that this isn't over and walks away. The bridge crew finally arrives to take the army back, and Dalinar tells Adolin to gather the troops. We cut to Dalinar's point of view. Dalinar goes to visit his Rishadium Gallant. He tries to give the horse extra food, but it normally refuses it. He tells Gallant that it isn't his fault that Dalinar fell, and says he's glad Gallant wasn't hurt badly. He gives Gallant the extra food, telling him that he deserves it, and he tells the groom to take good care of Gallant, and that he'll take another horse back to camp. Dalinar watched the king ride out with the first squad of troops, Wit at his side, and Sadius in the back where Wit couldn't get to him. Dalinar inspected the bridge crew, and a passage from the Way of Kings came to his mind. And I'm going to read this bit verbatim from the book. I once saw a spindly man carrying a stone larger than his head upon his back, the passage went. 
He stumbled beneath the weight, shirtless under the sun, wearing only a loincloth. He tottered down a busy thoroughfare. People made way for him, not because they sympathized with him, but because they feared the momentum of his steps. You dare not impede one such as this. The monarch is like this man, stumbling along the weight of a kingdom on his shoulders. Many give way before him, but so few are willing to step in and help carry the stone. They do not wish to attach themselves to the work, lest they condemn themselves to a life full of extra burdens. I left my carriage that day and took up the stone, lifting it for the man. I believe my guards were embarrassed. One can ignore a poor shirtless wretch doing such labor, but none ignore a king sharing the load. Perhaps we should switch places more often. If a king is seen to assume the burden of the poorest of men, perhaps they will be those who will help him with his own load, so invisible yet so daunting. Delinar was shocked he could remember the whole thing. The book had a bad reputation because of its association with the lost radiance. In other places, in the book, it said that light eyes were beneath dark eyes, and people really don't like that. Delinar turned his mount and clopped up onto the bridge, then nodded his thanks to the bridgemen. He thought they were the lowest in the army, and yet they bore the weight of kings. And that is the end of chapter 15. Okay. Uh, before we get into chapter 16, I have another image for you. Alessi Codes of War. Readiness. The officer will be prepared at all times for battle, never drunken on wine, never without his weapon. Inspiration. The officer will wear his uniform when in public to look ready for war and to give strength to his troops. Restraint. The officer will refrain from needless duels, arguments, or squabbles with other officers in camp to prevent injury to men who be may be needed to command. Leadership. The officer will require no action of his soldiers that he would not be willing to perform himself. And honor. The officer will not ab abandon allies on the field, nor will he seek vote to profit from the loss of his allies. So these are the Alethi codes of war that we've heard so much about that... That they aren't following very well. Yes. Dalinar is the only one that sticks to the codes of war. Good. Chapter 16, Cocoons. We have Kaladin's symbol on this. And it says, seven and a half years ago. Uh, Cal is telling a young light-eyed girl named Laurel about how his father wants to send him to Cubranth to become a surgeon. They were sitting on a ridge of boulders near Hearthstone. Tien was picking through the rocks nearby. Cal watches the farmers nearby and thinks about how Liren has said he thinks feeding the country is far more important than being a soldier. Laurel complains that Cal didn't tell him this earlier and mentions that he'd said he would become a soldier, kill a shardbearer, and become a light eyes. Cal reflected on his crush that was growing for Laurel, he also thought about how a strange blanket of melancholy would smother him at times when he wasn't expecting. And he's equating that to puberty, but he's he's clearly talking about his depression. Mm -hmm. And he thinks that his developing depression is just another side effect of puberty. Man. Yeah. She tries to tell Cal that he's from Alethkar, and that makes him strong enough to kill a light eyes, but gets frustrated with him, saying she hates talking to him when he's moping around. Cal sat there and contemplated the choice between soldier or, sor or surgeon as Laurel walked away to pout. He reflects on his depression and how he doesn't understand why sometimes he would dream of the future and others he'd be crushed by darkness. 
Man. And yeah, yeah. Tian approaches Cal and shows him a rock he found. Cal finds it unimpressive, but Tian pours some water on it, and Cal finds himself smiling at the different whites, brown, and blacks on it. Tian tells Cal that he found it for Cal to cheer him up. That made Cal feel better. He and Tian go off to try and find some creatures that were crawling around. Cal goes over to get Laurel to come with them, and she notes his improved mood. She wondered how Tian could cheer up Cal so easily. They go off and watch Tian as he tries to find the creatures. Laurel asks Cal what he'll do if Liren tries to send him to Cabranth, and he says he isn't sure, and she gets frustrated, saying he's letting his father control his life. Laurel is trying to hint that if he becomes a Shardbearer and becomes a Light Eyes, then they can get married, and Cal definitely does not pick up on it. He's like, why is she so obsessed with me becoming a Light Eyes? I didn't know that was a thing. Like, your eyes change if you they become have a not- Shardbearer? They've, I don't think they've mentioned it yet. They might have mentioned it as a, like, hey, it's a legend that if a dark, if a dark eye takes uh, a shard bearer, like, if they get a shard, then their eyes will turn light. But Kaladin is like, I've never seen it. Like, I don't know if I believe in it. But people, it's like a, a, a an urban legend, I guess. But then the Way of Kings says that dark eyes are better than light eyes? Yes, it does. So, being a shard bearer is a bad thing. It also says that, uh, or Dalinar also says that the Way of Kings was used as a guide by the Knights Radiant. So, the Way of Kings is a very old document. It predates the Knights Radiant. Mm. Something to keep in mind. So, being a shard bearer is a bad thing? Question mark? Um, that is possibly something you could take out of it. I guess we'll see. Yeah, I cannot confirm or deny. <laughs> but your your head is is on on a good track. Um, you should definitely be questioning the whole dark eyes versus light eyes thing. Uh, they see a group of boys who aren't working the fields like they should be and decide to go over to them. Cal asks the oldest boy, Jost. Uh, why, what they're doing and he's told that they were let go for the day Cal was embarrassed that he was studying medicine while these boys worked Cal asks them what they're doing and they ask if Cal has ever heard of a dark eyes becoming a light eyes Cal mentions through marriage and also that if a dark eye wins a shard blade their eyes become light Laurel says even a slave could become a light eyes if they want a blade the boys ask if it's ever really happened and Cal says it must have they talk about how being in the army is important in a lethy culture that it prepares men to go to the tranquil line halls and help the heralds. Jost claims that his father won a shard blade, and it was taken from him by another soldier, which Laurel laughs at. Cal says that the battles Jost's father had fought in didn't have any shard bearers. Cal says Jost's father must be misremembering, and Jost says that Cal always has to make people feel like idiots. He rags, he rags on Cal for studying instead of working and tosses a quarterstaff to Cal, saying that Cal insulted his father so now they had to fight. Cal wanted to drop the staff and walk away, but Laurel was there and he wanted to be a hero. Joss quickly knocks the hell out of Cal and gets him on the ground. Cal feels shame and something changes in him. He leaps up and starts to lay into Jost. He hits Jost's hand hard enough to draw blood, and the blood shocks him out of the trance he was in. Cal freezes up and and Jost sends him back to the ground. Cal sees Laurel stand up and start to walk away. And with a shout, he tried to get back on his feet, but Joss just puts a foot on his back. Joss says that Cal did well, but that he didn't want to actually have to hurt him. 
Cal asks Joss to teach him, and Joss says that Liren would kill him if he hurt Cal's surgeon hands. He tells Laurel he tells Cal to go be who he is. The boys left, and Cal sat there alone and embarrassed. He heard Tien call out to him from behind, and he asked how long the boy had been watching. Tien dropped a stone on the ground and ran off. Cal picked it up and saw it was just an ordinary stone. Tien loved ordinary stones. He had a collection and knew where he'd found each one. Could tell you what was special about them. Cal begins to walk home and wonders if he could train himself not to freeze up like he'd done with Jost. Cal returned to his home and found his father sitting on the edge of his operating table. Liren looked exhausted. Cal asked him why he was sitting in the dark, and Liren says that Laurel's father, Bright Lord Wistio, has died. Cal says the old man had been healthy a week ago, and Liren says that the Almighty calls all men to the spiritual realm eventually. Cal asks if Liren did anything to try and help, and Liren says he did all he could. Liren walks over to a covered goblet and removes the black covering. It was filled, it was filled with diamond spheres. Cal says they have no city lord now, and Liren says that Kolinar will choose a new one. Liren covers the goblet again and says that Wistio had left the spheres for them, a small fortune. He says Wistio had requested that they be used to pay for Cal's schooling in Cabranth. With that, Cal's fate was sealed. He would be a surgeon. And I'm going to read directly from the end of the chapter here. The rocks Tien had given him were still in his pocket. He pulled them out, then took his canteen off his belt and washed them with water. The first one he'd been given showed the white swirls and strata. It appeared the other ones had hidden design too. It looked like a face, smiling at him, made of white bits in the rock. Cal smiled despite himself, though it quickly faded. A rock wasn't going to solve his problems. Unfortunately, though he sat for a long while thinking, it didn't look like anything would solve his problems. He wasn't sure he wanted to be a surgeon, and he felt suddenly constricted by what life was forcing him to become. But that one moment holding the quarter's staff sang to him, a single moment of clarity in an otherwise confusing world. And that is the end of chapter 16. Whenever I read Kaladin flashback chapters um, and see how good Tien is, there's just a nagging voice in the back of my head that he's dead and it hurts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but... The bright lord of their town left behind this uh, this stuff for for Kaladin, so that he could he could go become a surgeon, which, as we know, happens. Right. Right. Oh. It definitely happens. <laughs> Chapter seventeen: A bloody red sunset. Uh, Kaladin's symbol is on this chapter, and the epigraph is: Might I be quite frank? Before you, before, you asked why I was so concerned. It is for the following re reason, and I hope you didn't want to know what that reason is, because it doesn't tell you yet. Cool. The chapter starts with Syl and Kaladin visiting the camp's apothecary. Kaladin notes that the place has an air of mysticism, but had a cleanliness that reminded him of his father. The apothecary immediately offers Kaladin a love potion. Like, Kaladin walks in, he's like, Ah, oh, Bridgerman, would you like a love potion? And Syl suggests Why? giving it to Gaz. <laughs> <laughs> Kaladin's father had told him how apothecaries would pass off sugar and common herbs as charms or potions. Kaladin tells the apothecary that he needs bandages and lists the exact items that he needs, surprising the apothecary. 
He explains that he's the son of a surgeon, and the apothecary immediately drops his act. He stops hunching over, he puts aside the cane he was using to walk, and he dusts off his robes. <laughs> Kaladin goes through a whole thing of buying the supplies. He doesn't have enough money for pretty much any of it besides the bandages. They do make a point of talking about that one of the plants the apothecary is selling is found on the Shattered Plains, and the apothecary says that it takes a lot of the plant to get any of the sap from it. They call it a sap, but Kaladin says that it's more of a, like, milky substance. Kaladin goes to pay, and the apothecary, and the apothecary gets mad that he's trying to use dun gemstones. Those are the gemstones that are no longer infused with stormlight. He inspects them and sees that they're real, but tells Kaladin that not everyone will be as trusting with, it, with him. Kaladin says that the spheres had been glowing earlier, but decides that Gaz must have given him spheres that were already running out. Kaladin kept his sphere that was still glowing, saying it was good luck to keep a glowing sphere in your pocket. Kaladin walked through the war camp, reflecting on what he'd learned that day. There were ten war camps, and across all of them, there were over 100,000 Alethi troops. That didn't include all the civilians. The troops of one war camp didn't mix with those of the others. Kaladin and Sil talk about how he hadn't expected the people of the king's army to be so separated. Sil says that humans are weird for acting so differently from one another, saying that Animal and Spren all act alike. Kaladin says that she's proof that not all wind Spren act alike, and she says that's why it bothers her so much. Kaladin arrives back at the barracks, narrowly avoiding being late for bridge duty. And during bridge duty, they just sit around the barracks waiting to see if a bridge run happens. Kaladin decides that he can't just waste away sitting down, so he's going to try to find some stretching or something to do. But before he can start, a horn sounds. Kaladin runs up to his bridgemen and yells at them to, get to line up. They ignore him and run around chaotically trying to get ready. The bridgemen all gather around the bridge. Uh... And Kaladin notes, you know, running at the front during the approach was the safest place, as you'd then move to the back during the actual charge. And as bridge leader, Kaladin got to run there. He got into position, and he says that Yake, Dunny, and Malop were the last stragglers to arrive. Kaladin orders them to lift the bridge, and they obey. They would listen during bridge runs. Bridgemen worked hard. They wanted to arrive before the Parshendi so they wouldn't be shot at as they tried to set the bridges. As they ran towards their destination, they passed a destroyed bridge that the Parshendi had managed to destroy during a high storm. So they set their bridge down, and instead of collapsing with the rest, Kaladin stood at attention. Moash cursed at him. One of the soldiers poked fun at Kaladin, asking if he wanted to see what true soldiers looked like. Kaladin tells the soldier that the bridge was like his spear and shield. He tells the soldier to treat it well. The soldier asks what Kaladin would do if he didn't, and Kaladin says nothing. The, the soldier walks off. Uh, he doesn't literally say nothing, but he just, he's silent. Sadius crossed the bridge, and Kaladin clenched his fists, his hatred for the man raging. Kaladin got the rest of the bridge crew up, Rock took a, lo a longer time than the rest, and they continued moving. After the fifth or sixth time doing this, the soldiers stopped making fun of Kaladin. Gaz told the bridgemen to switch places as it was time to make the assault, and the Parshendi had already lined up. Kaladin walked to the back, mentally and physically exhausted. And I'm gonna read from the book here again for a bit. He looked over the bridgemen. His men were resigned, despondent, terrified. If they refused to run, they'd be executed. If they did run, they'd face the arrows. They didn't look toward the distant line of Parshendi archers. Instead, they looked down. 
They are your men, Kaladin told himself. They need you to lead them, even if they don't know it. How can you lead from the rear? He stepped out of line and rounded the bridge. Two of the men, Drehi and Teft, looked up in shock as he passed. The death point, the spot in the very center of the front, was being held by Rock, the beefy tan-skinned hoy-neater. Kaladin tapped him on the shoulder and said, You're in my spot, Rock. The man glanced at him surprised, but to the back with you. Rock frowned. Nobody ever tried to jump ahead in the order. You're airsick, Lowlander, he said with his thick accent. You wish to die? Why do you not just go leap into the chasm? That would be easier. I'm bridge leader, Kaladin said. It's my privilege to run at the front. Go. Rock shrugged, but did as ordered, taking Kaladin's position at the back. Nobody said a word. If Kaladin wanted to get himself killed, who were they to complain? Kaladin looked over the bridgeman. The longer we take to get this bridge down, the more arrows they can loose at us. Stay firm, stay determined, and be quick. Raise bridge! The men lifted, inner rows moving underneath and situating themselves in rows of five across. Kaladin stood at the very front with a tall, stout man named Leighton to his left, a spindly man named Merc to his right. Adis and Coral were at the edges, five men in total, the death line. Once all of the crews had, brought, had their bridges up, Gaz gave the command, Assault. They started to run. Sil flew in front of them as they ran towards the Parshendi line. The first volley of arrows flew and Kaladin screamed out Tien's name. He wasn't sure why, but he felt a jolt of energy, a surge of sudden strength, unanticipated and unexplained. Merc fell, four or five arrows hitting him. Leighton dropped as well, Adis and Coral following him. Arrows struck all around Kaladin's feet. They hit the wood around Kaladin's head and hands. He kept running. Some of the Parshendi lowered their bows, looking confused. By the time they raised their bows again, the bridge had reached the chasm. Kaladin yelled for the men to drop the bridge, and an arrow sliced him near his ribs. He felt it hit, but didn't feel any pain. They pushed it into place, and the Lethe cavalry charged across. Kaladin fell to his knees beside the bridge and heard his father's voice, diagnosing his wound. He wasn't in any immediate danger. Kaladin needed to get to safety. He heard his father's voice again. Some people take lives. Other people save lives. Kaladin forced himself to his feet and staggered over to Haber, who had taken an arrow through his leg. Kaladin towed him to a cleft where Rock and some other bridgemen took shelter. He checked Haber's wound, then started to head back out. He slipped and fell. Some take lives, some save lives. Kaladin pushed himself to his feet and scrambled back towards the wounded bridgeman, his father's voice in his ear. He found Korm dead and moved on. Gadol had a deep wound in his side and Kaladin dragged him away just in time to avoid being trampled by Alethi cavalry. Kaladin dragged Gadol to the rest of the bridgemen and did a quick account. Five were missing. He went back out into the battle. Kaladin saw Dabid curled up as arrows flew past him. Kaladin threw himself to the ground and crawled beneath the arrows towards Dabid. Dabid didn't notice Kaladin. He was in shock, lips moving soundlessly, eyes dazed. Kaladin dragged him back towards the other bridgemen, slipping on blood as he moved. Kaladin got far enough away from the battle that he could stand, but he was too exhausted and fell to the ground. And I'm going to read from the book here again. Airsick lowlander, a voice growled. Kaladin turned as Rock arrived. The massive horn eater grabbed Dabit under the arms, pulling him. Crazy, he grumbled to Kaladin, but easily lifted the wounded bridgeman and carried him back to the hollow. Kaladin followed. He collapsed in the hollow, his back to the rock. The surviving bridgemen huddled around him, eyes haunted. Rock set Dabid down. Four more, Galadin, Kaladin said between gasps. We have to find them. Merc and Leighton, Teft said. The older bridgemen had been near nearer the back this run and hadn't taken any wounds. And Adis and Coral, they were near the front. 
That's right, Kalanin thought exhausted. How could I forget? Merc is dead, he said. The others might live. He tried to stumble to his feet. Idiot, Rock said. Stay here. It's all right. I will do this thing. He hesitated. Guess I'm an idiot, too. He scowled, but went back out onto the battlefield. Teft hesitated, then chased after him. Kaladin sat there exhausted. He heard his father's voice in his head, save lives. He crawled over to the wounded bridgemen and inspected their wounds. He called out to the bridgemen to find a knife and build a fire. Nobody moved. Kaladin told Dunny to get the knife and Narm to build a fire. Kaladin pulled off his shirt and handed it to Narm to use for the fire. Moash had flint and steel on him and handed it over. Kaladin called out for somebody to go find him water as well. They all stood there for a moment, then scrambled into action. Kaladin started working Gadol, trying to save him. But the man started to spasm. Then he spoke, and I'm going to read what he says directly. They break the land itself, he hissed, eyes wild. They want it, but in their rage they will destroy it. Like the jealous man burns his rich things rather than let them be taken by his enemies. They come. No mango. What does that mean? Does that remind you of anything? Some of the people before, when they had, like, their final words, they just said really, really mm -hmm. ominous shit for no reason. Yes, the epigraphs of part one were a collection of people's weird shit they said before they died. And now this Bridgman is, says something weird before he dies. And good old died. <laughs> Kaladin sat back, stunned by the pain of losing someone. His father had told him that time would dull his pain, and he'd been wrong. Kaladin felt so tired, but Rock and Teft were hurrying back with another body. Kaladin told himself to think of the ones he could help. He yelled for someone to heat the knife with the fire they built. Cal Rock and Teft deposited a very bloody Leighton in front of Kaladin. Teft said that the other three were dead, and that Leighton is probably going to follow. Kaladin yelled for the knife. Kaladin started cauterizing the wounds and muttered to Leighton, you will not die. You will not die. His mind was numb, but his fingers moved automatically. Pete returned with water, and Kaladin used it to clean Leighton's wound. Kaladin quickly removed all the arrows, cauterized the wounds, and cleaned them. He was barely conscious of what he was saying. Don't you dare die. Finally, he finished and inspected the man. Leighton was still breathing, but Kaladin was unsure about how long it would last. The other bridgemen were staring at him reverently. Kaladin tended to Haber's wound, and when he was done, he just sat there, staring blankly at the, at the ground. Teft sat down beside him and told him to drink. Kaladin tried to use the water to clean the other men's wounds, but Teft forced him to drink it. He asks Kaladin how he knew how to save the men, and Kaladin says he, didn't al he hadn't always been a slave. Rock says that saving them wouldn't make a difference, as Gaz didn't let them take back wounded who couldn't walk. Kaladin said he'd deal with Gaz and told them to return the knife they'd found. He said that they'll tie Leighton and Hobber to the top of the bridge and carry them. They'll also need someone to lead David if his shock hasn't passed. Rock says that Gaz won't stand for it, and Kaladin just closes his eyes. The battle went on for a long time, and when it finally ended, Kaladin went looking for Gaz. He finds Gaz and tells the man that they're taking their wounded back. Gaz says that Brightlord Lamoril won't allow for it, and Kaladin says that Bridge 4 will stay and lead the wounded soldiers back to camp. Lamoril will want to go back on ahead to party with Sadius, and he won't even notice. Kaladin hands Gaz a sphere to keep him quiet, and I'm just going to read the end of the chapter. Gaz took the sphere, snorting. One clear mark? You think that will make me take a risk this big? If you don't, Kaladin said, voice calm, I will kill you, and let them execute me. Gaz blinked in surprise. You'd never. 
Kaladin took a single step forward. He must have looked a dreadful sight, covered in blood. Gaz paled, then he cursed, holding up the dark sphere. And a dun sphere at that. Kaladin frowned. He was sure it had still glowed before the bridge run. That's your fault. You gave it to me. Those spheres were newly infused last night, Gaz said. They came straight from Bright Lord Sadius's treasury. What did you do oh. with them? Kaladin shook his head, too oh. exhausted to think. Sil landed on his shoulder as he turned to walk back to the bridgeman. What are they oh. to you, Gaz called after him. Why do you even care? They're my men. He left Gaz behind. I don't trust him, Sil said, looking over her shoulder. He could just say you threatened him and send men to arrest, it, arrest you. Maybe he will, Kaladin said. I guess I just have to count on him wanting more of my bribes. Spheres, Sil said, looking at Gaz. That doesn't seem like much to count on. Maybe. Maybe not. I've seen the way he looks at them. He wants the money I give him. Perhaps badly enough to keep him in line. Kaladin shook his head. What you said earlier is right. Men are unreliable in many things. But if there's one thing you can count on, it's their greed. It was a bitter thought, but it had been a bitter day. A hopeful, bright, burning, uh, a hopeful, bright beginning and a bloody red sunset. Just like every day. And that is the end of chapter 17. So... I think I'm picking up on something, but I'm hesitant to say it yet because we have people that are listening that haven't read the book. I mean, I haven't no. read the book either, but... There, uh, I, I think... Um... There's definitely some hints for something that uh, if you would like to throw out a guess, go ahead. I I think that he might possibly be a shard bearer anyway, even though like he's not aware of it. Or wait, no, he was, wasn't he? Wasn't he like storm blessed or something? I don't. All these terms are getting like jumbled up. But he's he's absorbing the stormlight. And from the gemstones, uh, uh, I, I, it sounds. It, it there is something weird. It seems happening with his spheres, um. But, but nothing. But, but nothing. Something weird is happening with Cal's Kaladin's spheres. It seems possibly, maybe. But yes. That is a chapter that I love. When I was rereading to get, like, the notes and stuff, I got chills at the you're in my spot, Rock. <laughs> that and Rock and Teft helping him and helping him save the other bridgemen. So we're mm -hmm. kind of experiencing, like, a new thing here, right? They very quickly start to respect him when he's trying to save everyone. Yeah. Like, oh, hey, you kind of actually give a shit about us. Maybe mm -hmm. maybe we'll help you save people. Kaladin is an inspiring man. I mean, you said it. They they called him Stormblessed in the army. And the reverence that, I mean, Sen, who barely knew him before he died, had. And um, I can't think of the other guy's name. The guy who served with Kaladin. But everybody in his squad in Amaram's army all revered Kaladin. Kaladin is a man that demands respect from everybody that he encounters. Mm -hmm. and um there's some weird shit happening I really I really enjoyed I really enjoyed you going oh the whole time I was, I was like oh I I think I figured it out oh oh I got it <laughs> that was very fun for me um 
I have another image for you. It is another map? It is another map. Kinda. I cannot read what it says. On the okay, bottom. so I will I will read the bottom. It says, Map of Alethi War Camps by the painter Van Donis, who visited the War Camps once and painted perhaps an idealized representation of them. Mm. So. What does the other part say? The other part says, A depiction of the Alethi War Camps from right to left belonging to Royan, Sadius, Aladar, Dalinar, Vama, Rothar, 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 I can't remember that guy's name. Yeah, and it's kind of fuzzy on the thing. Um, I think it's Ruthar. I think it's Ruthar, maybe or Ruthis, something like that. Thanadol, like Hatham, Betoth, and Sibariel. I stayed in Dalinar's war camp, marked with the tower and crown above. That to the west is the outer market. North of there, the king's, the king's complex contains from top to bottom. The Royal Palace, the Gallery of Maps, the Feasting Basin, and the Dueling Arena. For the north runs the mighty River Vandanus. Observe that Stormward is towards the bottom. Um, so yes, you can see there's like, you can see the ten war camps. And you can see there's like this market, this kind of neutral town area. And then there's Elokar's Palace at the top. On that hill. Mm -hmm. So, we're going to go for a little bit longer here. Chapter 18, High Prince of War. House Colin symbol. And we're about to read an epigraph that, oh boy, makes me giddy and will mean nothing to you. So, it reads, Eighty was once a kind and generous man, and you saw what became of him. Race, on the other hand, was among the most loathsome, crafty, and dangerous individuals I had ever met. And that's it. Your boys, 80 and race. Let me guess, they're from another series that I don't know of yet. Um, stay tuned. <laughs> I will say- Or they're I from this series and there's some of the people that disappeared. I will say one of them does n never is never mentioned again in in these books. Huh. Um. But their significance is wild. Um. I uh. I will remind you. I think I've told you who's writing this note, right? Is it that one, like? Brandon Sanderson's version of the McCreary yes. guy? Hoyd. Yeah. Hoyd is writing this Hoyd. note. You and never told me it was Hoyd. Yeah, it's it's Hoyd. It's pretty it's pretty easy to figure out. Um But yeah, this is this is a noit a noit. This is a noit from Hoyd. A note from Hoyd to someone. I think I had asked if it was by him and you were like, uh, stay tuned. But now you're just like telling I me. thought I said yeah, I thought I I thought I just answered. No. Yeah, it's but by now Hoyd. I know. There's no point in me really keeping it from you. Um, other questions about Hoyt I cannot answer, but, but that one I can. Uh, this chapter starts with Adolin, who is speaking with a leather worker about Elokar's saddle. He's back in the war camps. And really quick, uh, just because this is cool, they describe the leather worker as being Iriali, and they say that he has golden hair. Not blonde, golden. They make the distinction 
Adolin has blonde pe- bit like little bits of blonde hair in his black. This guy has golden hair. Huh. I guess I think that's cool. Also, I think that the genetics of this world are interesting to where you can have like different colors of hair mix into each other versus I believe Sanderson has said that if you worked really hard at it and you dedicated like your family's like entire like your generations of life to it, you could get a person with rainbow colored hair. <laughs> It would take a lot of that. work, and you'd have to be very calculated about it, but it could eventually happen. Uh, yeah, I mean, but also, well, that means that, like, people just have, like, colored hair naturally? Is that a it, thing it, in this world? So, de- it depends on the people. Um... I, obviously, when he says so, not obviously, but I should I should put this out there. When he says colored ha- like rainbow hair, he means all the naturally occu- uh, naturally occurring hair oh. colors in this. Like not literally, there's every color represented in the hair colors of Rochard. But I mean, there is gold, <laughs> and you've got you've got black, you've got blonde. There's gold, there's red at least. So there's well, because blonde is more. Number. Blonde has a lot of like brown in it, but if it's like yeah. gold, there's like no brown. Yeah, no. Straight gold this man's hair. Man. Um Adolin has I think I mentioned this, he has dark hair with specks of blonde in it. Cuz mm-hmm. of um Dalinar's mystery wife. His mystery wife. Um so the leather worker tells Adolin that the saddle strap was definitely cut, and Adolin is shocked that Elokar was right. Uh, Janala, who had, Janala is the girl that Adolin mentioned while on the hunt, or he was one of the girls. He's the new, she's the new girl uh, <laughs> that he mentioned. Janala, who had come along, complains that their walk doesn't include much walking. Adolin and Janala depart the leather workers, and Adolin finds himself having trouble paying attention to her. He's too busy thinking about the saddle strap. Janala asks him to tell to talk to Dalinar about loosening the soldiers' dress codes, and Adolin says that Dalinar is pretty set on it. Janala is about to say something when horn when horns sound, indicating a chasm fiend has been found. Adolin waits to see if Dalinar will go after the gem heart, but Dalinar leaves it to Sadius. Adolin tells Janala that there was something else he had to do, and he drags her after him. And we're gonna end there for this. So week. he. For once, he's not a head empty only girl. He's thinking about no. something else. He's and plotting. Just... Well, he's not plotting. He's trying to unravel the plot. Yeah. And then there's just girl, and he's like, "I guess you can come along." Yeah, he's like, "I," he's like, "I, I think you're hot, so you can come along, and maybe I'll get a chance to impress you at some point." <laughs> but yeah, um, that's. This that's that's what we cover in this one. Uh, we got pretty much exactly where I wanted to get because I don't have a whole lot more notes after this. Um, but yeah, we're just kind of we're we're in the we're in the swing of 
we're, we're kind of past the character introduction stage that we were in in part one and kind of the beginning of this part. And now we have the kind of plot lines for the different characters established. And, you know, Kaladin trying to save Bridge 4, Dalinar and Adolin trying to... Well, Dalinar wants to reunite Alethkar, and Adolin wants to, I guess, figure out who cut the strap of the king's saddle. Mm-hmm. And that's all I have for this episode. I don't know if there's anything else you want to bring up. No, not really. All right. Uh, really quickly, I'm going to give you a little tease for what's happening next for, with the with next week. And I'll tell you, next week, we will get our first experience. Our first experience with one of Dalinar's visions. Huh. So that's coming up next week. Uh, Mango, for now, though, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitch at Mango Asteroid. You guys can follow me on Twitter at Sean underscore AFK. We're on Twitter at at Speak Stormlight. Uh, we're on Anchor, anchor.fm slash speak dash the dash words. That's where we host the podcast. We're on a bunch of different platforms. Um, you guys can actually send us voice messages through Anchor, and that's really cool if you guys want to do that. Um, if you guys want to send us emails, we do have an email. I don't normally like say it but i actually put together a list of things that i need to plug at the end of the episode so um i'm gonna remember to do that now uh and that email is speak the words uh speak the words asp at gmail so if you guys want to send us an email you can do so there and also um the the cover art cover art was done by our good friend at tyler tylerums uh, he put this together for me because he's an awesome dude that even though uh, I'm going to fucking punch him one day, I swear to God. Um, <laughs> love him. Thank you. Thank you, Tyler, for doing that. You're not listening to this, but you know what? I bet he can feel it out in, in the in the galaxy. He can he can feel my appreciation. And if not, then fuck him. I don't care. Uh <laughs> Thank you guys all for joining us. We'll see you guys next week. For now, don't forget, life before death, strength before weakness, journey before destination.